All right, let's do this. Here we go. Go live. Well, good evening. Welcome to Austin Bible Church. We are here virtually tonight by means of the weather, and I am taking it by faith that the live stream is actually happening. <laughs> How about that? All right. Well, before we begin tonight, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father in his faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for the time we have to be together. Even though we're not in the same building, Father, we are in your presence. We have assembled together in the name of Jesus Christ, and we call upon your faithfulness, Father, to bless our time of study. We give you the praise and the glory, Father. We thank you for all things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we do want to uh, jump right into our study. Um, we ran out of time last night, and we have some loose ends to uh, to pick up on uh, tonight. So we'll see how that goes. Also, uh, we want to take a few minutes for some question and answer. And I believe I do have the uh, chat is enabled on the uh YouTube channel. So if anybody has a question and they want to type it into the uh, chat window, they have the opportunity to do that. I'm going to start, though, with one that came by email. And this was a, a marvelous question that came in from um, uh, from Glenda, uh, Glenda Bingley. This is uh, uh, from Omaha, Nebraska. But she has a great question here on the Abrahamic Covenant. It is an eternal promise uh, of land, seed, and blessing. So how can the land be an eternal part of the covenant if uh, if the heavens and earth are going to be destroyed, right? So if, um, if, uh, if the heavens and earth are destroyed by fire, how can the land be an eternal promise? That's a great question. The earth as we know it is destroyed. No more land uh, as promised. So the, the short answer is um, God's the one who made the promise, and God also promised to destroy the heavens and the earth. So I'm going to assume that he has uh, he has that worked out. Uh, there are similar promises as well with respect to the survival of Israel. If you've ever uh, heard Arnold Fruchtenbaum, he has a presentation that he uh, that he titles "How to Destroy the Jews," and it's a little tongue in cheek as a title. Uh, basically, there's a promise in Isaiah that says, uh, "If the fixed order of the sun, moon, and stars can end." If, uh, if if they are destroyed, then, then Israel can be destroyed. And that would be a similar conundrum uh, because we know the, the sun, moon, and stars are going to be destroyed. The earth is going to be destroyed. So um, effectively, I relax about it. Uh, since God's the one who made uh, all of these promises, he has to fulfill them all. And uh, so my suspicion is he destroys the heavens and the earth. He creates the new heavens and the new earth. And then uh, when, when Israel is placed in their land, that uh, it's going to be very clear that this is the uh, this is the uh, the land of Israel, the eternal land of Israel, just like they had it before. So anyway, that's a good question on that. Appreciate that. Uh, do we have any additional questions on the uh, chat window? I see Adam Carnegie has said that chat is working, so I can be uh, I can be confident of that. I've been praying all day that this backup plan of teaching class from, from my office uh, will not be an utter failure because of, of my technical ineptitude. So we'll see if these prayers get answered as well. 
the stream's current bitrate is higher than the recommended. I don't know what that means. I'm going to uh, I'm going to ignore that. All right, here's a question: Are there Levitical priests in the Church Age? Uh, no, there are no Levitical priests in the Church Age. Uh, the program for Israel is currently on hold, and so. Um, there, there might be some Jewish people who call themselves priests. Uh, in fact, if they have the last name of Cohen, uh, Kohen is the is the Hebrew word for priest. So, um, uh, you know, there may be some Jewish people today that think they're of that tribe. Uh, but be that as it may, the uh, the stewardship for Israel is currently on hold. That's a great question. Uh, Hebrews chapter eight says, "Whatever is obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear." That's Hebrews 8.13. And he says, a new covenant he made the first obsolete. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. All right. Any final questions? I'm suspecting this could be a slow question night, but other folks might type in on the, uh, the live chat. That'd be fine. All right. Well, then, let's go ahead. I'm going to close my Q&A window, and we're going to go back to Leviticus. Oh, here's a question. What is the outer darkness? <laughs> oh, ask me the easy ones, why don't you? The, um, you know, because it is such a um, contention, all right? Uh, so the short answer is I believe that the outer darkness is, uh, is, is hell. All right. Uh, for those that are excluded from the millennial kingdom, like at the sheep and goat judgment, um, only believers can enter into the millennium. Unbelievers are cast out and it is called the outer darkness. It is called the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Jody Dillo and some of the GES guys will dispute that and they attempt to find an outer darkness that is not hell. Uh, an outer darkness that is just, you know, somewhere else on earth, but not in the uh, millennial garden. And uh, and I have never uh, have never signed on to to that view. So um, the short answer is the outer darkness is hell, where uh, the weeping and gnashing of teeth take place. All right. Well, thank you for those questions. And I'm not sure. I guess I'll leave the live chat running. I don't know how to turn that off from now. Can I turn that off without ending my stream? I can. All right. Live chat is now off. Man. All right. Almost like I know what I'm doing. Well, um, last night. Uh, so tonight's hour, if you're, if you're just now signing in to YouTube or you're watching this video, you're expecting that this is day 56. And you are correct. This is day 56. And uh, in day 56, we are going to cover uh, Leviticus chapter 20, 21, and 22. And uh, we will cover that here tonight. Uh, but we did not quite get through uh, yesterday's message, and so I want to tie these loose ends together here. Uh, so backing up a little bit in uh, chapter 19. Okay, backing up more than a little bit into chapter 19. Verses 9 through uh, 16, and really to the end of the chapter. As the Lord established a variety of commandments with respect to a well-functioning society. And so many of these principles are so vital I would hate to miss them uh, by uh, running out of time as we did last night. So um, 
the principles that are established for the needy and the stranger to work for their food can be found here in verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field. So you can imagine a, a square plot of, of land that uh, is, your, is your field, but you're not reaping the corners. In other words, you, you can envision this as a circular type uh, reaping, leaving the corners unreaped, because those corners are going to be available for the poor and the needy, uh, the needy and the stranger, for the folks that, uh, that are hungry. And, and likewise, it says in verse 10, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard, for you shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And uh, once you pass through and you've reaped your harvest, uh, you know, don't go back a second, third and fourth time and try to grab every last little uh, nugget that you can out of there. You've gleaned it. You've reaped your harvest. Uh, anything that you missed, um, well, you know, leave that for the the, the, the poor and the needy. And uh, and so in that circular center area, most of it's been reaped. There's there's a little bit that's left there for um, for the uh, the social programs, but the corners have not been touched at all. So the corners have the full amounts that uh, that the poor and the needy can can go and obtain. Likewise, there are business principles for integrity in the community in verses 11 and 12. And uh, things that we can think of as personal items also apply in the business world. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of uh, your God. I am the Lord. Business principles as well for the fair payment of employees and contractors. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. So when the work day is over, you pay your workers what they what they uh, earned that day. Establish regulations for the protection of those with disabilities. Of course, verse 14, this is thousands of years before the Americans with Disabilities Act came along, but we weren't the first to invent such things. Um, they're presented here. You shall not curse a deaf man or place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. Uh, judicial principles for equal treatment in the courts. And uh, this can go either direction. Uh, if you're going to do injustice in judgment, you shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great. And, uh, you know, some people think uh, judicial activism is, is uh, so that the little guy can, can get his. Well, no, you're showing partiality to the poor in that case. Or if you're trying to protect the big guy. Uh, there should be no little guy, no big guy. In, in a judicial proceeding, everybody is, uh, is equal before the scales of justice. All right. So we have those. Then uh, the rest of the chapter, the Lord taught that external commandments are the dependent upon the internal heart attitude. Now, I, I felt bad driving home last night that we didn't get this far because this is huge. Verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. Like, wait a minute, my heart? I thought everything in the law was all about externals. I thought it was about ritual. I thought it was about, you know, shadows. And, you know, this is substance. This is the reality. The heart reality has always been a part. Old Testament, New Testament alike. So, so you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so we see that the uh, internal heart attitudes are key. And this shows up uh, several other places in the law as well. And uh, just interesting that it gets highlighted here. 
uh, the importance of maintaining a separation in what God has created separately. The principle of separation. Okay? So, you are to keep my statutes. You shall not breed together two kinds of your cattle. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. So, the idea of mixing what God has separated. Okay? Um, that's a principle. And, uh, and, and as the covenant nation of Israel, they were expected to follow that principle. Then there's a bit of a, this is the toughest passage of all, and maybe I should have just let, <laughs> let it go since I was bailed out last night by running out of time. A somewhat awkward afterthought to the admonishments of internal heart attitude and inappropriate mixing of kinds um, details a hypothetical adultery loophole. And uh, in the earlier part, or back in chapter 18, we were dealing with um, the sexual uh, immoralities, dealing with the uh, adultery prohibitions and all those things, well, someone might bring up a what if and suggest that, well, is it technically adultery if she's been acquired for another man but has not yet been uh, redeemed or has not yet been given her freedom? Um, you know, does, the, does her slavery status impact the fact that... Uh, that uh, this would otherwise be adultery. If she was a free woman and she was engaged to a man, then it would be adultery. But because she's not a free woman, she's just simply been purchased or acquired for another man. Uh, does that uh, does that get you off of the adul adultery hook, in other words? So anyway, verses 20 through 22 are addressing that. It does require a sin offering. It does require um, a restoration. However, there is no death penalty because uh, she was not a free woman engaged to be married. Verses 23 through 25, talking about entering into the land and planting the trees. Um, the Lord instructed Israel in planting their new orchards and the patience required in providing appropriate offerings to the Lord. And uh, notice in the fourth year is when all of its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. And then in the fifth year, you are to eat of its fruit, that its yield may increase for you. I am the Lord your God. And so um, this process of planting and then letting the first, second, third year go by, then the fourth year, um, the harvest there belongs to the Lord. It's only in the fifth year then that you actually get to eat what it is that you planted five years ago. So that's uh, an important patience lesson there. Again, the reminders about eating blood. This comes in a paragraph here, verses 26 through 31, warning Israel about witchcraft and sorcery. Uh, and that's the stuff they're going to start encountering when they move into the, uh, to the promised land. And so uh, consuming blood, practicing divination, soothsaying. Uh, this is where rounding off the side growth of your heads or harming the edges of your beard. Uh, these were the particular... Uh, facial hairstyles and, and, and hairstyles that were associated with the, the demonism of the day. Uh, making any cuts in your body. There's a lot of cutting that happens even in the modern world related to demonism. And uh, tattoo marks on yourselves. And this isn't, this has nothing to do with secular tattoos or, or you know, having the little heart mom tattooed on your on your uh, backside. No, this is this is the uh, the idolatry and the demonism that was associated with the uh, the tattoos uh, of what was spoken of here. 
uh, profaning your daughter by making her a harlot. And uh, again, more of the witchcraft involved in that. And so much of the divination was uh, was really just harlotry, like the Oracle at Delphi and uh, these gross, perverted old men up there and what they were doing with the, the virgin oracle and or not. I'm sorry, not the virgin oracle, but the the uh, the harlot oracle that was up there. All right, so we had that. That gets you all the way down through verse 31. Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out or be defiled by them. Of course, this was a great failure that Saul had when he was bringing up the uh, uh, bringing up Samuel from the grave to inquire of Samuel, uh, involving these mediums, the, the witch at Endor. And uh, you know, don't just write this all off as, as silliness. This is real stuff. Uh, demonic power works. It works according to God's permissive will, and uh, we shouldn't be taking it lightly. We shouldn't be playing with it. All right. Then two final points: uh, being respectful of the elderly. In verse 32, rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged. You shall revere your Lord, uh, your God. I am the Lord. And then uh, hospitality toward the strangers among them. That's where the chapter concludes in verses 33 through 37. And uh, issues there. All right. So those were the loose ends that we ran out of time for last night. We can move on to chapter 20. Chapter 20 focuses on some of the most evil practices that the Lord has already prohibited. In this chapter, however, specific penalties are prescribed. You know, all the sex stuff we went into last night, uh, you, sh you shall not do this, shall not do that. But there were no penalties associated with any of those things, okay? They were just a prohibition saying, don't do it. Tonight we get the penalties in, uh, in many of these things. Uh, capital punishment is indicated as the human judicial function. So when we find out about shall be per, uh, surely put to death, like right there in verse 2, shall surely be put to death. Any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Molech shall surely be put to death. So last night we saw don't do it. Tonight we find if you do it, uh, it's capital punishment. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. That's on the human side. On the divine side. Cutting off from among the people. This is indicated as the divine judicial function. In, and so in addition to what people are doing in verse 2, here's what God is doing in verse 3. I will also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Moloch so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. And so we see that the cutting off, the cutting off of a name from among his people and so he dies physically when he's stoned to death. He's executed by the, the human judicial function. Beyond that, God removes the name. And so in his children, and if he, if he has any, uh, that he hasn't murdered to Molech, or grandchildren or so forth, the name is being removed. And so whatever descendants are alive are going to be left childless, or they're going to be left with you know only girls instead of boys, whatever the case may be. Uh, that name is going to be removed, and it will not be preserved for the millennial kingdom or for all eternity. And that's the uh, the judgment there. So these two concepts should be viewed as two sides of the same coin. The sin and the death from God's perspective, the death penalty from man's perspective. Active participant in Moloch worship, that is child sacrifice, and passive toleration of Moloch worship. I mean, if you just know it's happening and you allow it to happen, 
um, you are guilty, totally condemned, designated as capital offenses. All occult practices are punishable by death. All right. If you turn to mediums and to spiritists, you are playing the harlot. Okay. Keep in mind the phrase playing the harlot very frequently applies to fornication, just applies to uh, non-marital sexual uh, fornication is called playing the harlot. Well, so too is uh, the idolatry of demonism. It's playing the harlot with the demons. And so you are fornicating with the demons when you should be uh, worshiping the Lord God. And so uh, mediums and spiritists and, uh, and all of these practices, worthy of death. Cursing of parents is punishable by death. Anyone who curses his father or his mother, he shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood guiltiness is upon him. Now notice, we, we've, we've encountered this phrase before, blood guiltiness. All right? It's, it's serious business. And for cursing a father or a mother, it is the equivalent of murder. It is the equivalent of shedding innocent blood. It leaves you with blood guiltiness. And these are equivalencies that maybe we wouldn't necessarily assign ourselves with our own human viewpoint. But God assigns lying as equal to murder and, and, and cursing of a father and mother. There's all these things, rape, uh, homosexuality, so many of these things, adultery. And, uh, you know, we live in a culture where, you know, the capital punishment for murder seems to be almost impossible in, in a lot of states to uh, to still exist to this day. Imagine uh, all these other sins having capital punishment assigned to them. Uh, good luck with that. <laughs> so, in any event, the um, the uh, the laws of the land that that have capital punishment as an option in Texas is pretty small, but in the Old Testament it's pretty broad. And uh, so am I advocating uh, going back to Old Testament uh, traditions? They're not traditions. They are guidelines for holiness that God has put into his law for his theocratic nation. And, uh, and if we were to emulate such things, then we would have a legal system that would be closer to God's ideal, see, and uh, as far as, as those things go. Now, I will say we're not a theocracy, and so I think the... The laws that are in there related to uh, idolatry and related to, uh, you know, the first two commandments, you shall have no other God before me. Um, I think in, in, in a Gentile nation, particularly in a Gentile nation that has a plurality of, of uh, belief, then it's, uh, it's so long as we have the, uh, the First Amendment in our Constitution, then you're not going to have the death penalty for worshiping another God. However, the other things, rapists, uh, child abusers, uh, you know, adultery. I'm up for that. Okay. So uh, anyway, that's uh, what you're dealing with there. The uh, sexual violations of chapter 18 are punishable by death. And now we have really the, the uh, longest part of this chapter from verse 10 down to verse 21. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. It is, uh, you know, it takes two to tango and, and both parties are, uh, are guilty. It always strikes me how in, in uh, that 
passage of the uh, when Jesus is riding in the sand that they caught the woman in the act. They dragged her before Jesus. But where was the man? You know, I mean, they caught her in the act. There was there was another party in this and uh, they did not drag him in front of the Lord like they dragged the woman in front of him. So the adulterer and the adulteress will surely be put to death. And this this, by the way, this this causes the divorce rate in your land to plummet because uh, there's there's far fewer divorces when uh, when you're putting the adulterers to death. You have a lot more widows, granted, uh, but widows are free to remarry. And uh, and uh, and there you have it. All right. Um, verse 11, a man who lies with his father's wife. He has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Okay. A man who lies with his daughter-in-law. And, and keep in mind, as we talked about this last night, we're talking about violations of marriage expectations, that it is marrying and having sex with people that you're not entitled to be marrying. And those are the issues there. So, um, yeah, so the incest with your mother, uh, with your daughter-in-law, in verse 12, uh, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed incest. Blood guiltiness is upon them. Absolute seriousness of this. A man who lies with a male is one who lies with a woman. Both of them have committed a detestable act. And some of the adjectives that describe the homosexual sins uh, are unique. They are not featured in the heterosexual sins and words like abomination and detestable and uh, some of the phrases that we saw last night um, are, are very descriptive in, in how God is laying this out. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Okay, And this is not homophobic. This is not prejudice against uh, 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 homosexual sin. Most of these categories are heterosexual sin. Fornication is fornication, regardless. And uh, all of these are punishable by death. The uh, man who marries a woman and her mother. We talked about uh, polygamy was uh, a feature of the ancient world. Polygamy was not common, uh, unless, except by kings, and, and, and you had to be quite rich to support the, uh, the extended uh, multi-wife household in that. Um, but if you are a practitioner of polygamy, it cannot be a woman and her mother or two sisters or a mother and a granddaughter and things like that. We saw that in chapter uh, 18. So um, marrying a woman and her mother, it is immorality. Both he and they shall be burned with fire. Now, that's normally the, the death penalty is by stoning, death by stoning. But there are just a small little number of practices here that um, where where burning by fire is featured, and uh, and and see if you can pick up on a common thread between uh, between the ones that happen like that. But this is the first one I think we've encountered in in Leviticus so far. All right, if a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death. You shall also kill the animal. Okay. Notice how putting to death is a judicial function. It is a capital punishment applied by the, uh, the uh, governing authorities of a, of a uh, society. Um, it is, but it is expressed differently than killing an animal, okay? Because that's killing an animal. But putting to death the image of God for his violation of God's will, that's, uh, that's a different issue altogether. hope that makes sense.
All right. Verse 16, if there is a woman who approaches any animal to mate with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. And, okay, and so here I just made a big deal about the put to death phrase being different than the killing phrase in verse 15. And I think verse 16 just turned it upside down. Um, you shall kill the woman and the animal, and then they shall surely be put to death. All right, so. I'll have to re-examine that. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Verse 17, if there's a man who takes his sister, his father's daughter or his mother's daughter, so that he sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace. They shall be cut off in the sight of the sons of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He bears his guilt. The uh, menstruous uh, woman, and this is even within marriage, okay? We talked about that last uh, last night. So, uh, and covers her nakedness. He has laid bare her flow. She has exposed the flow of her blood. Thus, both of them shall be cut off from among their people. Cut off, okay? We saw the uncleanness of it in chapter 18, but this cutting off shows God's displeasure with respect to that. And we've got a few more verses. Get, get down to verse 21 here. Not uncovering the nakedness of your mother's sister or your father's sister. Such a one has made naked his blood relative. They will bear their guilt. A man who lies with his uncle's wife. He has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They will bear their sin. They will die childless. If there is a man who takes his brother's wife, it is abhorrent. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They will be childless. So we do we do see some variety of the uh, judgment. We see some of it is in God's hands, the cutting off, the childlessness. Um, notice that the childlessness is described as a divine judgment um, in a culture that not only valued children, but absolutely was dependent upon children to, uh, to care for their elderly parents in those, in those uh, golden years. All right, so that gets us through the sexual violations. And I'll tell you, of all the things, you know, Leviticus is already alien uh, in the animal sacrifice and the rituals and, and so many other things that, that in the 21st century, we, we don't relate to those, to those things. And sadly, I mean, in, in some ways it's good. I mean, because the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross completely... Uh, makes obsolete the animal ritual of Leviticus. And so uh, we're, we're thankful to be in the church age. We're thankful that the dietary restrictions have been uh, abrogated. We're thankful that uh, we have the liberty and the freedom that we have in the church age for what we have. Those are all the positive things about uh, Leviticus being so different from our culture. But here's a very negative thing uh, about Leviticus being so alien to our culture. And the reason why is because our culture has become so hypersexualized and become so perverted that things the Bible calls uh, abominations in our day and age are celebrated, and they are um, they they throw parades and they have uh, you know appreciation months and all kinds of things, and, and you can face very real threats of, of harm and, and uh, financial consequences and all kinds of things. If you get labeled as a as a hater, you know, a homophobe or all the rest of it, 
And, uh, and it's just sad that our culture has turned as, as upside down as it has, even to the point that, I mean, forget the, uh, the, I mean, what, what's next? You know, when we sink even lower than where we are now, I'm not going to tempt the Lord and say, um, say that, uh, that, oh, that would never happen here. But, you know, we're going to we're going to see pedophilia. We're going to see bestiality. We're going to see, you know, all kinds of other things that were just unthinkable 20 years ago uh, start to get normalized in the in the near future. It won't take them long in uh, in different ways. Okay, and even just the idea of remaining a virgin until your wedding night and 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 saving yourself for your for your marriage. You're looked at like you're some kind of a kook. Like, what's wrong with you? And uh, that it's normal, it's good, it's healthy. And, uh, you know, uh, somebody asked me, well, how would you, how do you know if you're compatible if you don't, uh, you know, if you don't cohabitate before uh, before marriage? And you, know, you should at least shack up for, a, you know, six months as a as a trial, you start our marriage or something. You know, it's just crazy. Uh, but it shows you how uh, pathetic our uh our moral degeneracy has has progressed. All right. Well, the the next part here, verses 22 through 26, the passage concludes with the admonishment, uh, the admonition that Israel was not to imitate the Canaanite practices when they take the Canaanite land. And so they're moving into the land, and there's a reason why uh, the uh, about to be former occupants uh, are about to become the former occupants, right? Uh, they were given time to repent. They did not repent. And the iniquity of the Amorite is now complete. And God has pronounced their conclusion. So uh, you are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them so that the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. The whole vomiting of the land. We, we This was in chapter 18 as well that that um, the things that will pollute a land, spiritually pollute a land, includes the, the fornication, includes idolatry, includes demonism. These things will absolutely defile a land. Oh, and bloodshed, the innocent bloodshed. So if we live in a land with, with, with this rampant violence, and you can see it, I mean, how many murders were there this weekend in, in Chicago, for example, or Baltimore, or all these other places that are just... Um, it's it's open season in uh, in so many of these urban areas. It's it's sad. All of that bloodshed is defiling the land. Likewise, all the fornication is defiling the land. All the idolatry is defiling the land. So, as uh, I think it's fair to say that the United States of America is uh, probably the most defiled land on the planet today. It's 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 horrendous. So, uh, the land will eventually spew you out when it's had uh, too much. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nation which I will drive out before you, nation which I will drive out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. We talk about abominations and abhorrence and, and God's own view on things. Hence I have said to you, you are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. And again, what God separates, don't mix them, don't blend them. And if it, if it seems dumb, you know, if you have, uh, and, and we do, we have, uh, you know, uh, a lot of our clothing is, is, a, is a blend of, of different fabrics and whatever else. And, and that's fine. We're a Gentile people. We're not under law. 
Um, but Israel was not to have that, right? So uh, you're not mixing your fabrics. You're not mixing your crops in a, in a, in a field. You're not crossbreeding animals. Uh, you are identifying the distinctions in kind and uh, doing so as a testimony to, to the creator God who made these distinctions. This uh, blessing of separation, this is a big part of what holiness is about, particularly when the, the peoples are, uh, are uh, worshiping demons. We don't want to be associated with that. So you're to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean, between the unclean bird and the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by animal or by bird or anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. And the dietary restrictions is this basic principle. Clean versus unclean. God made a separation. Don't uh, don't muddy the waters. Okay. Same thing with male and female. He he made the distinction. Observe the distinction, and uh, and celebrate it. Be thankful. You are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Okay. I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. All right, in that 27th verse we had earlier up in point three, I failed to mention that. Yeah, because we had verses six through eight, also verse 27 in the uh, the adult or the uh, occult practices there. Mediums and spiritists shall surely be put to death. Stoned with stones, their blood guiltiness is upon them. All right, so this is the, the principle of holiness. And of all the reasons why... Um, Leviticus should be appreciated, should be valued, it should be esteemed. It, uh, it it shouldn't be ranked so low as 66 on your top Bible book list. It really should be higher than that because uh, Leviticus gives you the overwhelming uh, doctrine of holiness. And everything that, that applied to Israel in terms of ritual holiness and ceremonial holiness um, also contained the mental attitude of of real holiness. And that's what we're supposed to be learning from. We have a holiness mandate ourselves in the New Testament without the ritual, without the ceremony, but we still have the holiness mandate. And even worse, we have, or worse, more intense than thou shall be holy for I am holy is thou shall be perfect. Even as your heavenly father is perfect. So the New Testament just ramps up the holiness expectation to the degree of perfection. And I hope we're, uh, we're clear on that. All right. Watching the clock and moving on. Chapter 21. We've got to cover 20, 21, and 22 tonight. So, all right. Table of contents. We're halfway down. <laughs> Leviticus 21. Here's an interesting chapter. Okay. If I'm not already in enough trouble, let's get into some more. Um, the Lord gives particular instructions to the priesthood, which is held to an even higher standard of holiness. Okay. I mean, goodness gracious, all the tribes were under these holiness imperatives and, but the priests were just above and beyond. Okay. Priests could not defile themselves to bury any dead person except for immediate family members. That's for the normal priest, the high priest, not even family members. So when Nadab and Abihu dropped dead, Aaron can't uh, can't leave work. Uh, he can't even deal with the, the 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 corpses, the remains. He's he's banned from uh, from that. So um, let's take a look here. These first few verses speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, "No one shall defile himself for a dead person among his people, except for his relatives, 
who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, also his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has had no husband, for her he may defile himself. He shall not defile himself as a relative by marriage among his people, and so profane himself. So for a priest uh, to, to bury a, a family member, uh, that would leave him unclean, no question. Um, it's permitted for a priest as long as they are immediate. Not an in-law, not extended, but immediate. That's for the priest. Any priest except the high priest. Okay, And that's the, uh, the expectation there. There's other issues here, too, that some uh, pagan priesthoods, making baldness on their heads or shaving the edges of their beards or cuts in their flesh, those were uh, marks of the pagan worship, and God wanted none of that for his Levitical priests. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, They shall, because they present the offerings by fire to the Lord, the food of their God, so they shall be holy. And I will skip a little bit down. We'll come back to that about virgins. But when we get into verses 10 through 12, the priest who is highest among his brothers, we're talking about Aaron, the great high priest, and then Eliezer who succeeds him and so forth. The priest who is highest among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil has been poured and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head or tear his clothes, nor shall he approach any dead person or defile himself, even for his father or his mother. Now keep in mind, if he is the high priest, that tells you his father's not even alive. I, I, I've always puzzled over that in any event. It's an idiom. The closest of family relationships um, doesn't matter. Nor shall he go out of the sanctuary nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecrating of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. All right. So a lower priest can bury a family member, but the high priest cannot. All right. We also have marriage limitations. Priests could not marry a non-virgin. Priests could not marry a non-virgin single woman or a divorced woman. Okay, and this is verses 7 and 8. They shall not take a woman who is profaned by harlotry. Okay, and this phrase profaned by harlotry, I find that significant. Um, Nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for he is holy to his God. All right, so uh, the divorced woman is not profaned in the way that the harlot is profaned, but still both um, the, uh, the harlot and the divorced woman are both single, as we would call them single today. Um, they didn't use that language back then, but um, in this case, uh, the harlot and the uh, divorced woman are both single. They don't have present current husbands, so they could be married. Except for the fact, the priest can't marry them, okay? So any other Jew could, somebody from another tribe is fine, Judah, Reuben, or any of those. Um, no problem uh, with, with, with marriage uh, of a divorced woman, uh, unless the person was a priest, okay? Same thing with a woman who is profaned by harlotry. What do we mean by that? We mean a girl that had premarital sex. We mean uh, a, a woman that was not married and who played the harlot as an unmarried person. Harlotry is any unmarried sex. Okay? And Desmond is not... Get the idea of modern prostitution out of it. Get the idea of if she's paid for it or not. Okay? Doesn't matter. Um, if she's not married to the man she's 
uh, she's fornicating with, she is playing the harlot. And so is the man, by the way. The man that's not married to her, he also is playing the harlot. They're both fornicating. It takes two to, uh, to tango. All right. So this is the single woman who is not a virgin. Then we have the widow was apparently acceptable to a priest, but not the high priest. His wife must be a virgin. And uh, so if the, uh, if the restrictions are tight in verse 7, they're even more tight in verse 14 for the high priest. He shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman, or one who is profaned by harlotry. These he may not take, but rather he is to marry a virgin, of his own people, okay? And, and this verse is, is pretty inescapable because it's describing uh, really four kinds of women. Um, uh, well, I guess three kinds of unmarried women. And uh, and then, of course, a married woman would be the, uh, the fourth option there. And then the virgin. So um, a widow, a divorced woman, or one who is profaned by harlotry. And again, the, the idea of profaned, think of this, because of the sanctity of marriage. Think about the, the, uh, the, the sanctity of uh, the, the sacred uh, marriage bond or the sacred marriage covenant. And so to violate that uh, is, is profane. Uh, when you think of what is holy and what is profane, what is sacred and what is profane. Okay. And so, um, God has designed marriage to be sacred. God has designed marital relations to be sacred. And sexual activity, apart from that, is profane because it is, it is just a violation of what God has designed to be sacred, to be sanctified within, within marriage. So that's, uh, again, it's alien to our culture today. There's, there's no question that uh, today everything has turned on the issue. Uh, the only thing that makes moral versus immoral today is consent. Our culture has determined that as long as two sinners agree to it, they have consent and it's moral. Uh, the only thing immoral is if there's no consent. The only thing immoral is if someone didn't want to do it. And, uh, and so they've turned consent to be the, the uh, parameter of what's moral or immoral. And, um, the Bible says marriage is what, what is the parameter of what is sacred versus profane. Okay. And uh, that's the, that's the, uh, the realm we want to keep it in. All right. So the high priest, um, the, uh, a lower priest could marry a widow, but the high priest cannot marry a widow. Okay. And there's no sin attached to being a widow. There's no, there's no, um, it's not wrong to marry a widow. But for the high priest, he's required to marry a virgin. All right. The priest's family must likewise maintain personal holiness. If a priest's daughter had premarital sex, the daughter was to be burned. And that's um, verse 9 there. The daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by harlotry, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. And that's the second time now that we've encountered death by uh, fire in Leviticus. So curious in the, the rare cases where this is um, where this is prescribed. Remember when Judah of course played the harlot with Tamar, he didn't know that it was that that he was the one doing it. Uh, but it was reported to him that Tamar has played the harlot. So um, Judah said, bring her out, let her be burned. 
until he found out that he was the the father of the child that she carried, and then he uh, you know started singing a different tune. All right. The last part of chapter 21 here is verses 16 and following. I hope everybody's uh, still with me and awake. I'm just preaching to a green light tonight. And I hate this. But that's okay. God knows what he's doing. The priesthood has precise physical qualifications and disqualifications. So, speak to... Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. We're talking about a physical defect. Remember, the offerings, the animals for the sacrifice had to be without spot or blemish. They had to be uh, perfect animal uh, sacrifices. And likewise, the priests have to be physical specimens without spot or blemish. No one who has a defect shall approach a blind man. Or a lame man, okay? So you have no blind high priest. I don't know how they would do it anyway. How would a blind priest, uh, you know, sprinkle the blood and all the stuff that they have to do? Or a lame man, or he who has a disfigured face, or any deformed limb. That the physical, visual reminder of sin cannot be present anywhere in this priesthood of holiness. Or a man who has a broken foot, or a broken hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or one who has a <laughs> you know, the dwarf. I don't know how he would reach the, the altar. I don't know. But the fact is, is these are visible reminders of sin. One who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs or crushed testicles. Okay, there it is. I've been talking about it for about a week now. We finally get to it. And all of these, um, all of these physical limitations are uh, invalidating. They will remove a man from his priesthood. And so uh, they can't come near to offer the Lord's offerings because of the defect. Shall not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat the food of his God, both of the most holy and the holy. Only he shall not go into the veil or come near the altar because he has a defect. So he will not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Now, of course, this is a huge difference with uh, our priesthood in the New Testament. Such physical requirements are not found anywhere in the church age priesthood in Christ. In fact, just the opposite. We're told in Hebrews 7.16 that our priesthood is not granted on the basis of a law of physical requirements. But our priesthood is granted according to the power of an indestructible life. And this is such a marvelous truth. Um, of course, Christ didn't even qualify to be a Levitical priest. He was from the wrong tribe. Um, but... No, the, the basis of physical requirements, that's what the Levitical priesthood was all about, not us. The power of an indestructible life. Here we are. This is us, you and me. If you have uh, eternal life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then you have the basis for this Melchizedek priesthood in Christ, and, uh, and praise God for it. That's, uh, that is such an amazing joy for us to, uh, to, uh, to celebrate. Okay, which now gets us to chapter 22. And we're going to cover 28 verses in 8 minutes, so fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> All right. It's actually a pretty short chapter. Um, I do want to uh, highlight a couple of items here. i got four points to study. Um, this is a continuation from the, uh, the previous chapters here for the priest to follow. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, 
we have this marker here in the Hebrew that just highlights us to uh, to the fact that it's a continuation or it's a it's a new topic actually that's being uh, dealt with here. All right. So tell Aaron and his sons to be careful. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Especially after Nadab and Abihu, right? Be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so as to not profane my holy name. So if something has been offered, if something has been dedicated, it's sacred. Don't profane what is sacred, okay? The idea of profane is the opposite of sacred. It's the opposite of sanctify, the opposite of holy. So if it's been set apart, don't profane it. The first section centers on the food, the holy gifts that were designated for the priests, and the importance that they not eat them in an unclean condition. And I think about this too in our priesthood. You know, we're coming together for Bible class. We want we're partaking of food. We don't want to partake in an unholy fashion, in a profane fashion. We, we can't be carnal. We got to confess our sins. We want to be in fellowship. We want to have the fear and reverence. Um, we don't want to be sitting here all bored and ho-hum and, and acting like we've heard this all before. We should be trembling before the righteousness of God and just in awe and wonder that the God of truth has condescended to, to teach me. Right? Who am I that I should enter into his counsel? Who am I that I should be even allowed to, to study the Bible or learn the word of God or, or, or glean elements of his truth? And yet he's given his spirit to live in me and he's revealed his word and the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. So it is, uh, we should partake with, with great reverence. And so really the first 16 verses of this chapter all center on this. So uh, don't profane his holy name. Say to, say to them, if any man among all your descendants through your generations approaches the holy gifts, which the sons of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off before me. I am the Lord. And God's going to know. No man of the descendants of Aaron who is a leper, who has a discharge, may eat of the holy gifts until he is clean. Remember, we talked about leprosy. We talked about um, uh, uh, emissions, okay? Normal emissions, abnormal emissions. Talked about those. And uh, if 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 uh, one of the priests was in that kind of a situation, well, then he's he's unfit for duty. He's going to be unclean until he's pronounced clean. Uh, he touches anything made unclean by a corpse, or if he has a seminal emission, that would include normal marital relations. If a man touches any teeming things by which he is made unclean, um, any of that uncleanness, a person who touches any such shall be unclean until evening. He shall not eat the holy gifts unless he has bathed his body in water. But when the sun sets, he will be clean. Afterward, he shall eat the holy gifts, for it is his food. All right, so we have the issues there. They shall therefore keep my charge so that they will not bear sin because of it and die thereby because they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And, and trust me, every one of these priests knows how serious this is because they saw what happened with Nadab and Abihu. So they're going to be uh, they're going to be uh, diligent. They're going to be careful. No layman, however, is to eat the holy gift. No layman or stranger. Okay? So if you're not a priest, you're a stranger going into the tabernacle and trying to eat this food. A sojourner with a priest or a hired man shall not eat any of the holy gift. 
But if the, if the priest buys a slave as his property with his money, that one may eat of it. Those who are born in his house may eat of his food. That's interesting. All right. So the slave gets to eat. If a priest's daughter is married to a layman, she shall not eat of the offerings of the gift. So as long as she's the virgin daughter in the priest's home, then uh, she can partake of those uh, offerings. But as soon as she's married outside the priesthood, then uh, she no longer has access to, uh, to those gifts. If the priest's daughter becomes a widow or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house, as uh, in her youth, she shall eat of her father's food, but no layman shall eat of it. If he eats the gift unintentionally, shall add a fifth to it and shall give the holy gift to the priest. This adding of the fifth, we talked about that briefly. That was in the, uh, the trespass offering, the guilt offering of, uh, of chapter 5. They shall not profane the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they offer to the Lord. So cause them to bear punishment for the guilt by eating their holy gifts, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. All right, so that gets us down through verse 16. Some uh, other passages that go with this include 1 Samuel 21, 4. Remember when um, David was fleeing and the men that were with him, and uh, he had to flee very quickly. And uh, the only food that was available was this consecrated bread. And uh, they actually gave them some. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. And David said, yep, we're good. So <laughs> they ate this food and, uh, and God didn't strike them dead. Jesus uh, addressed this himself in his own teaching. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 32. For us, the admonition comes when we're observing communion. That uh, we have a, a sacred table. We have a solemn assembly when we are partaking of the table of the Lord. And we can't eat of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And we can't profane the communion table. So we've got to be very careful that's why we judge ourselves rightly. That's why we don't uh, partake of communion in, in carnality or in an unclean way. There was, uh, there was sin and a death in the early church for profaning communion. So that's uh, the closest thing we have to a parallel of Leviticus 22, 1 through 16. All right, we get to 17 and following. Centering on the offerings and the importance that they be without defect. And we've seen this before. So this is, um, notice how a lot of Leviticus is redundant, okay? It's redundant and repetitive. Oh, i got to hurry. Um, so, for all of these offerings, uh, must be a male without defect. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, will not be accepted for you, okay? And to fulfill a vow, a free will offering, has to be perfect to be accepted, no defect. Those that are blind or fractured or maimed or eczema or scabs, nope, can't use those. Testicles bruised or crushed, nope, can't use those. All right, sacrifices must be perfect. And then finally, verses 26 through 28. The last section addresses additional requirements about the minimum age for an animal to be sacrificed and the prohibitions against sacrificing an animal and its mother on the same day. Like, why do the animals care? God cares. And so we have, uh, from birth, it shall remain seven days with its mother. From the eighth day on, it shall be accepted as a sacrifice. And you shall not kill both it and its young in one day. Okay, cool.
You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be sanctified among the sons of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. All right, we did it. We've reached it. It is now 8.30. We have to conclude. So we'll come back for day 57 tomorrow. And uh, day 57, we'll be dealing with chapters 23, 24, and 25. Excellent. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity. And though we could not get to our building tonight uh, because of uh, the weather and road conditions, uh, Father, we just thank you for being faithful. Trust that uh, we'll be able to return tomorrow night for face-to-face. And uh, if not, this is our backup plan, Father. Thank you for the technology you've blessed us with and uh, for uh, making it work in spite of the uh, the uh, in spite of my concerns about not getting it done right. So, Father, you've uh, you've proven yourself faithful. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, keep your armor on. We will see you again here, there, or in the air.